0: Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends. It's the weekly podcast brought to you by the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This week, senior editor Nick De Sena brings us his thoughts on the new Suzuki GSX-8R. This is the fully fared, slightly more sporting version of the excellent GSX-8S upright middleweight that came out last year. The 8R uses the same new highly acclaimed super smooth parallel twin engine that's been seen on several models and clearly putting it into a really sporting style motorcycle makes a lot of sense. Nick spent a couple of days on both the street and at Chuckwalla Raceway in California really putting the new bike through its paces. In our second segment this week, Neil Bailey chats with Paul Murphy of Meticulous Restorations. Paul is a world-class restorer, currently operating out of Canada, and he has restored some amazing machines. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling,
1: we hope you enjoy this episode. This is the GSX-8R, and essentially it's the follow-up to the GSX-8S, which was the naked bike released about a year and change ago at this point. Uh, It's interesting because typically we see fully fared versions come out prior to naked versions. Usually the naked is a derivative of a fully fared version, but in this case it's worked the other way around. Sort of a rare turn of events. Uh, That said, there's a pretty short list in terms of what is different between the naked bike and the fully fared bike, though they do make some pretty significant differences. Of course, we have the bodywork that's Plainly visible, you have a a full fairing that uh, definitely leans into a more GSX style, we'll say, in terms of its design. Uh, so it really harkens back to the GSX uh, GSXR models, uh, the one thousand, the seven fifty, the six hundred, etc., cetera, etc. And from a design standpoint, that's what the brand was leaning into in terms of its its headlight construction, and uh, you know the intake. Uh, intake ducts flanking the headlight, things like that. But still, the design language is definitely of its own generation, where it features a stacked headlight that we first saw on the GSX-8S and continued on on the uh, V-Strom 800DE, Uh, so the the middleweight adventure bike uh, that uses the same power plant as what we have here. At any rate, one of the other changes that we have is a slightly more aggressive riding position, uh, a little bit more conventionally sporty, we'll say, and they've also updated the fork and shock, uh, still a non-adjustable fork in the front and a preload adjustable only, uh, shock. But as far as other things go, uh, it's pretty much the same bike. It shares the same chassis, same swing arm, same wheel, same brakes, and, um, uh, same engine as well and that's the 776 cc parallel twin engine
0: are there any differences to the to the engine I mean or or is the are the electronics and everything you know the modes exactly the same or you know have they changed the gearing have they done anything at all to allow for a slightly more performance oriented um you know machine
1: no no it's it's a straight copy and paste job in terms of what you see with the gsx 8s versus the 8r which isn't necessarily a bad thing uh suzuki has really taken a stance that is more indicative of the brand overall where the 776 cc parallel twin engine isn't something that i would describe as being overly aggressive or or really one-dimensional in any particular manner uh so suzuki like other japanese brands uh, is trying to speak to a very broad audience. And one of the ways they're doing that is by developing just a very torque-rich uh, motorcycle that, that allows good low-ends and mid-range power delivery. In fact, it, I would say it prioritizes those two things. Um, so if you look at a broader class that it sits in, its competitors would be something like the Aprilia RS660. You could also mention the um, The Yamaha YZFR7. And the upcoming Triumph Daytona 660, bikes that I would say are more closely aligned with a true middleweight, quote unquote, displacement. And what the Suzuki brings to the table over those engines is that one, it has a little bit larger displacement. So its low end and mid range power just seems more broad, it seems a little bit more forgiving for uh, intermediate and I don't want to say beginner riders cause I wouldn't necessarily aim this at a beginner. That said, if someone, you know, has some, some chutzpah to them, you know, uh, it wouldn't be out of the question for someone to make their bones on this bike. Again, really, really tractable power delivery and it just doesn't deliver its power in a, in a necessarily shocking way or, or, or have a power bands that might be intimidating for a lot of riders, so it's it's incredibly inviting. Now, it does tend to taper off towards the the upper RPM band, and that's what I would say if you were doing a straight you know shootout with an RS660, that's where the Aprilia is probably gonna um, eke out a win. But in terms of horsepower, we're dealing with 82 horsepower and 58 foot pounds of torque, which is kind of unique. Uh, to actually cite because typically the Japanese subsidiaries within the United States do not cite horsepower or torque figures for, by and large, most of their, their motorcycles. There's a handful of kind of exceptions, but that's generally how it is in the States. Uh, I've heard a million different reasons why, but that's a whole different conversation. And anyway, so. The power plant uses a, a pretty in vogue, we'll say, 270 degree firing order. You can see that in the the RS660, the Yamaha YZFR7. That's the MTO, MTO7 power plant. And it's really just become popular with parallel twin design. Um, you know, it does give it that, I would say, a little more kind of snarly character to it. Again, Suzuki doesn't lean into that as much as some of the other brands, say like the KTM Duke 790, which I think the engine is definitely relevant to this conversation. But we're talking pure naked bike versus not, so we'll kind of leave that one by the wayside for the moment. But as we continue on, you know, uh, some of the other aspects of the engine, good shifting, the gearbox is solid. Uh, it's an insanely smooth. Uh, Suzuki unveiled a brand new. Counterbalancing system, and I think that's one of the things that struck most of the press core overall. Whether we're talking about the 8S model, the Naked Bike, or the V-Strom 800 Adventure Bike, and all obviously that carries over into this this motorcycle as well, where it's incredibly smooth. Um, you know, even up at at higher RPMs, if you're approaching redline, we'll say, it remains quite balanced all the way through, top to bottom. And again, that's how I think Suzuki is really speaking to that broader audience. They're providing something that on one hand may not be as aggressive as what you see from Aprilia, Yamaha, or KTM necessarily, but conversely, it can speak to riders that are coming up from that beginner stage, moving into that intermediate bracket potentially even beginner riders that are a little bit more brave or, uh, uh, we'll say, uh, adventurous. And then of course you have, uh, experienced riders that can really take advantage of all of the performance that this bike has to offer. So overall, I think the engine as it stands is a, is a pretty solid unit. Um, and like I mentioned before, gearbox is good. It does come with an up-down quick shifter. And like the 8s, that was one of the things that we, we definitely uh, hinted at in terms of needing a little bit of improvement the upshift function works pretty well kind of nothing to write home about in that regard it it works the downshift is a little bit hesitant so when we were on our track sessions you know you're banging through the gearbox more aggressively uh you know i just reverted to the old school way of shifting interestingly on the 8s i thought the the auto blip function was hesitant um So it made me reach for the clutch for a a different reason, but still there's some uh, room for improvement there. The interesting thing about the balancer
0: shaft is that it's actually underneath the engine, isn't it? Um, Which obviously gives the engine a, uh, you know, a shorter length from front to back. Um, So that presumably uh, when we get onto the handling, I don't know if that really sort of helps the handling at all, but I'm very curious as to, um as to how that that feels if there's anything noticeable with with that you know unique way of doing things
1: uh that would be pretty difficult to comment on just because we would need to try a bike with and without it or more specifically we would need to try a 776 cc version of this engine with or without it um parallel twin engines though typically have very tight packaging which is one of the reasons why many manufacturers are moving towards them it allows uh shorter chassis design overall, and it it typically allows bikes that, that can be much more narrow. So as we speak about chassis dynamics and things like that, uh, that definitely plays a part. Because if you were to think about the SV650, for example, which uses a conventional V-twin engine, its design makes the bike a bit longer in the sense that it's pushing the front end out further because it needs to create space for that cylinder that is jutting forward, whereas a parallel twin doesn't have that issue. Uh, And it's something that you could observe with an inline four power plant as well. The critical difference there is that inline four engines are significantly wider because, well, they have two extra cylinders. Uh, That said, since we are kind of hinting at the chassis and ergonomics of the bike overall, I'd say let's just jump onto the ergonomics because that is probably one of the most prominent changes from the 8S to the 8R.
0: Yeah, I'm in, I'm interested in that because the you know the the 8R does not look particularly aggressive. It still looks relatively upright. I mean, compared to my you know GSXR 1000, which is pretty aggressive, um, how is the the 8R by comparison? Well,
1: It seems that Suzuki's definitely been looking at the greater middleweight class overall and, and definitely done their homework in trying to emulate and better in certain circumstances, those bikes. So like the RS 660, like the Daytona 660, although not nearly as aggressive as the fully committed YZFR 7 from Yamaha, the 8S really balances what you know most sport riders would want versus what what they might think they need we'll put it like that in in a lot of ways you know uh, especially more aggressive riders will think that they want a fully committed super sport riding position which is what the yamaha yzf 7 has whereas the rs660 the daytona 660 that we haven't written yet but we've seen plenty of photos of it and the gsx8r Split the difference between a naked bike and a fully committed supersport riding position. In this case, the 8R uses what I've dubbed and plenty of other people have called faux riser clip-on style handlebars, where the handlebars are mounted directly to the top yoke. It's kind of the same strategy that the RS660 does, and in my opinion, I would say Suzuki has really, really emulated the Aprilia RS660 in terms of its. It's fitment overall. It really splits the difference between those those two those two types of bikes, bikes, a naked bike and a fully committed super sport bike. And it's just that extra step where it adds a little bit more weight over the front end because your upper body is drawn closer to the front end. Arguably, you're going to be getting a little bit more front end feedback. And you're going to just get a little bit more um a little bit more from the front end versus a naked bike. Uh, you'll feel bit more connection to the front end beyond that you do have the wind protection that comes with the 8r so it is a fully fared motorcycle that extends to protecting your your knees and then you have the the little windscreen which does a pretty good job of just providing a a fair fairly basic level of wind protection is it up to snuff with a tour no but it was never supposed to be anyway and that's fine and on that note you know we're not exactly carrying Deep into triple-digit speeds, even when we do ride a bike like this on the racetrack, just doesn't have the horsepower to to really do it. Um, So you don't have to worry about you know turning into a sail and feeling like you're doing lat rows as you hold on to the bike. Uh, that said, the seating position and riding position overall, the rider triangle, we'll say, is pretty solid. I think, like the RS 660, they've really nailed that for for riders that are going to be spending the clear majority of their time on the road so the the seat height is cited at 31.9 inches but when you factor in that we're using a pretty tight parallel twin uh, engine package it allows engineers to create something that's quite narrow overall so the stand over height with my 32 inch inseam i can get boots on the deck with room to spare and my legs aren't cramped cramped overall um, at all. There's a really generous leg room. So the the peg to seat ratio is quite good. Uh, The only thing that you have to consider as you start looking at things from a more performance mindset is that when you carry high lean angles, you're probably going to start customizing those foot pegs. That's why customizable and adjustable rear sets came onto the market to give you more ground clearance. So it's always a trade-off, right? If you're going to be street riding, you probably will never touch a peg down and, you know, it's no worries. If you start ripping this thing around racetrack, depending on your riding position and your style, whether you hang off the bike a little bit more than others, or you ride a bit more old school and carry more lean, you know, those are things that uh, will be dictating whether or not you're, you're grinding the foot pegs down. Um, and this is something that we've noticed about the RS-660 as well. So you add comfort, which means lowering the foot pegs. There's a greater likelihood that you will be scraping them. And that's just how it is. Uh, does it slow me down? Not necessarily, but um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's uh, overall in terms of comfort and fit, I think they've done an excellent job when it comes to street riding. When you think about the other stuff, there might be a little bit of a uh, uh, customization or room for customization right there. But in the grand scheme of things, I, I sort of hard pressed to really, really throw the, uh, you know, throw the gauntlet down at it just because this is one of the few bikes where I think I did a 30 some odd minute stint on the racetrack, went through like three quarters of a fuel tank. Whereas one of my colleagues, uh, he was out there until the fuel ran out. So, you know, it speaks to the fact that it is a comfortable motorcycle, and you know, a fully, fully committed supersport bike. I just don't see myself staying out there for thirty something minutes, if not more.
0: Yeah, and and let's be honest, most of these bikes aren't going to see the track that they sell. I mean, it, you know, it's a, it, that's a fairly um, niche kind of uh, kind of pastime. You know, there there will be some guys with this bike that will definitely do track days and and if you find that you know you're a real track you know hardcore track day guy hey you know change out the footrests but i think it's smart of suzuki to make it a little more comfortable um for what is going to be mainly a street bike so yeah so excellent so how does all this translate to the handling and the uh the suspension
1: yeah so suspension updates come in the form of a showa single function fork uh it is a an upgrade we'll say over the kyb stuff that's on the the 8s and uh the shock as well is a, is a show a unit uh, same amount of adjustability between the 8s and the 8r non-adjustable fork and a preload only uh for for the shock uh, so there you go pretty simple stuff um you know if there's a kind of a black spot on its record I would say it's definitely in the lack of adjustment. You know, we're we're looking at a bike that costs $9,439. And while I understand that COVID has really upset pricing structures, we are talking about a motorcycle that's knocking on the door of 10 grand. And that's something that we do have to discuss because pricing hasn't necessarily flipped the script quite yet. Now, all the bikes that are coming out Within the you know 23 24 model year are subject to the latest and greatest greatest pricing that reflect reflects today's uh, marketplace and uh, you know supply chain costs. That said, you can look at MTO nines and things like that when they launched a couple years ago. Granted, they've gotten a little bit more expensive, but when they launched, uh, the MTO nine was actually cheaper than this and had fully adjustable suspension. So that's obviously something that Suzuki and other manufacturers are going to have to consider. Uh, Triumph is in the same boat demanding a similar price point for a similarly specced motorcycle, but really just kind of goes with the trend of paying more and getting less overall. So that's something we can levy at basically every aspect of life. Um, Now that sort of diatribe aside, the, Showa Fork is updated in the sense that it offers a slightly slightly lighter spring rate in comparison to the 8S, but it offers significantly heavier damping. Now, in terms of raw functionality, what this bike is trying to achieve is a lot of different things. And it, what I think a lot of readers and listeners will, will start thinking about is the SV650, because that was kind of the the quintessential do-it-all sport bike and the 8r really fits into that same kind of ethos we'll say so it it wants to tour it wants to sport ride it wants to do track days it wants to commute and if you look at building suspension for all those different activities you're talking about building suspension that behaves radically different from each other and it's pretty difficult overall that said Suzuki had a pretty tall order on their hands and they got it right. And, you know, the bike is quite balanced. It's stable. It doesn't uh, dive under, you know, under hard braking and, and Chuck Walla isn't the hardest braking racetrack in the world, but it's still, you're still braking a lot more aggressively than you went on the road for, you know, all intents and purposes. Um, the, the fork damping is quite controlled. Uh, although yes, I would like adjustment but that's, we got what we got. And so you know it 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 really has some parity with the the chassis and the engine overall because it doesn't squat excessively. You know the engine isn't just tying the chassis into knots. So this sort of more budget, quote unquote, suspension works nicely. Um, and it's actually kind of impressive, considering you know what it's doing. So on the road, you get something that's compliant, controlled and won't uh, translate a lot of a lot of you know the pots and their you know potholes and things like that through to the rider and and at a more extreme example the racetrack it holds up to that as well now we should note that the stock bike comes with dunlop sport max road smart two tires uh, we've been pretty vocal about our criticisms of this older tire from dunlop it's featured on pretty much the clear majority of of Suzuki's current sport touring lineup. So it's on the GSX-S1000, the 1000GT, the GX Plus, a couple other bikes. Uh, Interestingly, it's a more mileage conscious tire, although I I would say with this uh, displacement in terms of power and the weight of the GSX-8R overall, these tires actually fare a little bit better in this specific case. Now, for the racetrack, we did upgrade to some Dunlop Sport Max Q5S tires, which is the track day tire from Dunlop. Super grippy, you know, happy days on that that end. And, you know, kind of one of the few hiccups that you'd really notice with the GSX-8R in comparisons to its competitors is the fact that this bike uses a lot of steel in its construction. So, you know, steel twin spar frame instead of aluminum, uh, steel trellis, uh, subframe. And when you start adding things up, you're looking at a bike that weighs 452 pounds wet. So it's quite porky in that end, you know, middleweight bikes really need to be lightweight. And, uh, you know, if you're trying to build a bike down to a certain, a, a certain, um, price point, those are some of the compromises you make. That said, sure, it may not be as agile on the you know uh, flip-flopping transitions left to right, right to left as some of its competitors, but arguably, it's got really good front, front end feel, nice and stable, nice and composed, and extremely balanced. Uh, so again, Suzuki's really leaning into that usability factor, that user-friendly factor that we see in a lot of their products overall. So is it the best handling bike within the class? Perhaps not, but is it the most balanced one in the class? I'd want to do a full comparison to really, you know, stick that feather in its cap, but I would say it's it's moving in that direction. Uh, so that's where we're at on that one.
0: So the handling is really quite neutral. It, it's, uh, it's, but, and you know, it feels stable.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely in that realm. Um and on the electronics front, it does come with a a fairly basic electronics package overall. Uh, it uses non-IMU systems, still has traction control which is quite adjustable. You can also disable it. Has non-adjustable ABS and uh, several different ride modes for my purposes. It it borrows the same dash from the 8S and the Vstrom 800 and also uses an interface that's Pretty comparable to what we see on the s 1000 motorcycles, so they, the user interface is pretty much the same, as long as well as the switches overall. And so you have A, B, and C modes, which stand for active, basic, and comfort. Um, again, really don't think Suzuki should call anything on any of their products basic. That's just asking to be blamed. Um, it's kind of a weird nomenclature. That said. With the power delivery, I left this thing in A mode 95% of the time that I used it because it's not going to bite you. It's not going to rev out you know, in a, in an overly aggressive manner. It's just, just there. And for me, the sportiest A mode works really nicely. Whereas on the Gixxas 1000 bikes, I've always been kind of down on the A mode. I think it's a bit too snatchy. Granted, we're dealing with a completely different engine configuration and a significant step up in horsepower too. So, not exactly an apples-to-apples apples comparison. Uh, you know, TC. Again, we're not using IMUs, so it's a arguably a more rudimentary system. That's fine. I, you know, the power you have on hands could definitely get you into some trouble, you know, but you don't have to be wary of it like you would on a superbike. So. You can turn down the TC down to levels one or just straight up turn it off depending on your skill level and comfort and you know the tires that you're running on that particular day. Um, one of the oddities that I do find a little bit questionable from Suzuki is the fact that it it runs a ride-by-wire system, but there's no cruise control. Uh, at this point, I think consumers are are pretty much all in for cruise control. And if ride-by-wire is being employed, then there's... Uh, no excuse on my end of it to to not employ it at least as an option. Uh, so seems like a, a little bit of a whiff on that one. Now moving on, you know ABS. That's kind of a uh, in this particular class of motorcycles. That's that's a touchy subject. The Yamaha YZF R7, for example, uh, its ABS intervention is is quite intrusive. We'll say, especially at higher paces at the racetrack it's something that we were critical of during reviews and subsequent tests uh with the comparison between the yzfr7 and the kawasaki zx4 rr which may answer this conversation a little bit if you wanted to really stretch things um it's down on power considerably but still anyway um yeah i didn't have any issues with abs um Uh, Maybe it's the way I break. Maybe it's not. I know some other colleagues were really complaining about ABS, but at the same time uh, I was lapping at a perfectly comfortable pace for myself and, 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 uh, and other, other colleagues that were going a bit faster didn't have too many issues. So yeah, again, my opinion may change if we were at say a button willow style race course where, there is some significant hard braking zones in that, in that, at that track or say Laguna Seca, like turn 11, something like that. Whereas Chuckwalla, there are some harder braking zones, but not necessarily anything where you're really just dropping the anchors and slamming through the gearbox, which is definitely going to, you know, stress ABS systems a lot more than normal. That said, since we are on the, the subject of brakes, something that Suzuki definitely needs to improve upon with a lot of different models using an axial, uh, master cylinder and, uh, of the Nissan variety. And then uh, of course you have the Nissan four piston calipers power. Isn't an issue. Stopping the thing is, you know, it's whatever. It's totally fine. It's the fact that the master cylinder just lacks feel. And I would say upgrading to a radial mounted, uh, not radial mounted but just a radial master cylinder you know getting a a Brembo RCS master cylinder aftermarket could fix that pretty much instantly for a couple hundred bucks then you'd be looking at the rubber the rubber uh brake lines and probably some more aggressive pads to really just turn that braking system into something that's pretty untouchable at that point but these are these are complaints that we've levied at Suzuki with the GSX S one thousand, the GT, and the GX, and you know they all carry relative componentry. Obviously, they are different because a one thousand cc bike isn't going to be using the same stuff as a middleweight, but they use comparable, uh, you know, master cylinders and things like that between them. So, um, you know, when you look at the Italians, the Germans, the you know even other Japanese brands. Not Yamaha. They, they do struggle with their braking uh, just as badly. But even then, the Yamaha YZFR7 has a, a Brembo radial master cylinder. Uh, as much as I don't like its ABS system on the racetrack, I would argue that the, the brakes are uh, are an improvement in that regard. Or not an improvement, but they are a step up. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the GSX-8R in a nutshell. Um, we we rode the bike you know, on the road for a full day, we rode it on the racetrack for another full day, ripped plenty of laps to really understand what was going on with it, and walked away from this test pretty confident that you know myself and my colleagues had a good understanding of the product. Now, within the grand scheme of things, like I mentioned before, I think Suzuki is trying to target a much larger audience. They're trying to throw a wider net than say the Aprilia, uh, which is a bit more expensive, has more advanced electronics, and really focuses primarily on a performance mindset, while it is a intermediate level bike and expert level, you know, depending on who's riding it. And Aprilia really is trying to kick open the doors and speak to to more riders and bring them into their family. That bike is a little bit more hardcore in a couple of different ways, from its engine character to its handling. And, you know, just it's it's more in-depth electronics. The YZFR7, it's a bit more aggressive in the riding position category. You know, they went with a fully committed super sport riding position, which for the racetrack is advantageous on the street. It does you no favors. We'll <laughs> and, you know, I would say you'd, you'd really need to focus on your core uh, at the gym and and make sure you're a limber guy or gal. Um, Because sitting around at stoplights on super sports is not the coolest thing in the world. It's kind of part of the reason why they're not very popular these days outside of their price and the fact that performance of super sports and super bikes has become pretty unapproachable. Um, You know, the riding position just on a fundamental level is taxi. Whereas the RS660, the the GSX-8R, and ostensibly the Triumph Daytona 660 really focus in on that sweet spot. They know that these bikes are going to be riding on the road predominantly, and they know that people are going to be putting a lot of miles on them in a lot of different ways. They haven't truly lost sight that the middleweight class is probably where the sport bike, uh, you know this new generation of parallel twin powered sport bike that's where the market's going because look do we all have 30 g's for a super bike at this point uh i don't no and definitely kids getting into the sport don't so if you want to give someone something good sporty and fun here we go and suzuki knows how to do that they've done something called the sv650 and when i think about the gsx8r I think about the G, the SV650, and there's a lot of parallels between those two motorcycles. Obviously, this is a an updated version of that. In my humble opinion, you get a lot more bike for the money in terms of size, fit, fitment, uh, you know, build quality, a little bit more performance. But when you look at the scope of work that those two bikes did, pretty pretty in line with each other. And interestingly. They're going to be sold alongside each other in the United States. The SV650 hasn't gone the way of the Dodo and the GSX-8R is the new kid on the block. So if you want the old V-Twin, it's still hanging tough. And if you want the new stuff, well, here you go.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the GSX-8R strikes me as a bike with, you know, relatively basic specification um, in order to keep the price down. So those who want a cool street bike for a for a sensible price, you know for less than 10 grand they get a really cool looking bike that works extremely well on the street and it's going to do everything that they want and for those that take it to the track or actually want to start racing it um okay there's an upgrade path there and the bike has the potential to do it uh in fact i read the other day that moto america have uh have just approved it for you know the twins cup uh so it will be it will be racing in moto america this year and Obviously, you know, those modifications are fairly simple to upgrade the suspension and the, you know, the foot pegs, the ergonomics and what have you. And you've got a got a cool race bike as well. So I, I think Suzuki are, are sort of positioning it in a smart way. They're aiming it at, you know, Joe Public, who's actually going to be buying the thing. And I, I think that's a, a smart thing to do. And there's, a, there's an upgrade path if you need it.
1: Yeah. And that's sort of the middleweight class in a nutshell, where it's not ever going to be too extreme and it needs to be fairly reasonable in all regards, whether it's performance price fit approachability and things of that nature as well. And and on kind of a final note, they really are trying to, you know, be all things to all people and certain bikes can actually do that. So in this case, while well, you could go with aftermarket providers for some performance upgrades within their own uh, accessory sort of ecosystem, there are, you know, Frame sliders and and crash protection stuff like that. Then of course you have some soft cases that are integratable into the subframe, and you know they're all pretty much turnkey sort of things. Um, so again, bike's going to be doing a, a whole lot of different things for different people, and that's a-okay, and and that's just where we're at. So pretty excited about the middleweight class overall. I do think that this is where the the sports segment. Uh, might be diverging I think we've gotten a little bit too crazy in terms of technology horsepower price and everything else and we kind of need a, a come to Jesus moment yeah the, the exactly. greater motorcycling uh data. so so that's where we're at
0: yeah it's a it's a great looking bike and I I think from memory from what I've seen is they're they're offering at it at a really um, attractive financing rate I think 1.99% I've seen so, you know, this is a, an accessible, um, like you say, intermediate bike that is going to appeal to a lot of people. It's cool, it's it's fun and it's comfortable and it's a great machine. So, uh, all right, hey, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Nick. Um, appreciate your insights as always. Oh, sounds good. In our second segment this week, Neil Bailey chats with Paul Murphy of Meticulous Restorations. Paul is a world-class restorer, currently operating out of Canada, and he has restored some amazing machines.
2: I guess by the time I was in my early mid-teens, um, I had little interest in school. Um, I was getting reasonably good grades. I was pretty consistent, but I really wanted to leave school and start an apprenticeship. So after a few years of um, hankering with my parents, my father eventually said to me, well, look, it, if you can get a job, I'll let you leave school. So that didn't take long. Uh, I did get a job, an opportunity for an apprenticeship. And I got to leave school when I was 16. And um, I initially wanted to serve my apprenticeship as a tool maker. And the reason I wanted to be a tool maker was because I had aspirations of building motorcycles and making what I felt were better motorcycle parts and more customised components than were generally available at that point in time. And my influences at that point in time were going to the, the local road race meetings in Ireland and Northern Ireland and getting the opportunity to sneak into the paddock and study some of the high-end race bikes. and
3: uh, How did you come to motorcycling? Were you always interested in it? Did your father ride? Was it a family affair? <laughs> yeah.
2: No, my, my father certainly did not ride, Neil. He was scared of his life for motorcycles. Uh, my mother was a very placid woman, and she was kind of easygoing, you know, and if that's what you want, you know what, you can try it. And um, I guess when I was about 13, my brother, my only brother who was four years older than me, he brought home um, a Triumph 350, uh, an ex-police bike, uh, unknown to my parents. And uh, I remember going out the next morning and seeing this motorcycle in the garage at home and sitting on it and thinking, good Lord, this is, this is freedom. Now this is coming from dark days in Ireland. I was never politically uh, motivated, um, and I, you know, back in those days, there were uh, a couple of things you never talked about in public, and religion was certainly one of them.
3: Yes. Um,
2: so I, I, I was never involved or motivated or interested in that end of things whatsoever. I was just a young guy. You know, I had my own interests and I was pursuing them to the fullest of my ability at the time, which when I look back uh, to where we've come now over the years and what we've learned, it was
3: laughable, you know, some of the stuff that we rode and built. As young as it was a big world, was your CG125 your first motorcycle? No, that was my third motorcycle. But okay, this, so you, you, did you go through the moped phase?
2: No, my, my very <laughs> first bike was a Yamaha um, 125 twin-cylinder two-stroke, an AS1. Y- know, I, I, I had one. Yeah, well, I bought, that, you know, I bought that bike when I was 14, not long after. My brother David got his Triumph 350, but that bike was in about a dozen boxes, and I, I paid £40 pounds for it at the time. And I I spent probably, I don't know, six or eight
3: months rebuilding the whole bike. You showed mechanical aptitude very early in your life at that point then.
2: Oh, I think so. Like, I mean, I was an absolute hoodlering on on bicycles and built forks for bicycles and all kinds of stuff. And uh, there was one bicycle I I, I built, Neil. It was just laughable. You might remember the song by uh, American band Ram Jam, Black Betty.
3: Oh yes, yes, yeah! I used to go to the right. that.
2: <laughs> yes, well, well, uh, that's actually quite an iconic song still to this day. Mm. But uh, my bicycle with the big forks and all the the handlebars off my brother's uh, Triumph three hundred and fifty <laughs> were on that bicycle, and that bicycle was called Black Betty. But anyhow,
3: so the AS one, what happened to that? Did it did it go before you were able to ride it, or?
2: I did get it to run, Neil, Um, and if if you may recall back then, electronic ignitions were very, very few and far between. The AS1 had two sets of points, and religiously, I would have to set the points in that bike about twice or three times a week. Why? Because the ignition kept on slipping on it because the crosshead screws were worn out and you couldn't properly... Yeah. (laughs) We, we just didn't have the wherewithal to go down to the local fastener supplier and buy socket head cap screws, you know, which would have been the end of the problem because you could tighten, <laughs> properly tighten the, this this was some of the carry-on that happened, you know, and if we knew then what we know now, it would well, have been very different times. It would have been dangerous. <laughs> well, it would have been very dangerous, but it, it would also probably have changed the course of history that followed. <laughs> You know, and I, I I laugh I look back at that and I just laugh at some of the some of the things that were done and not done, etc. And if we knew then what we know now, it'd be a different story. What happened to the AS1? Um it was incredibly unreliable because of the ignition timing. Everything else worked well on it and I was then given uh a Yamaha AS3, a later model, 125 two-stroke twin. Mm. Uh, it was a complete rolling chassis, and there was no there was no engine at the time. But I was given that bike by a guy in our hometown, and I had to go and find the engine for it, which was with the, a local mechanic. And uh, it took a long time to prize the engine out of him. But I did get it, uh, rebuilt the engine, uh, and that was a really fun little bike. Again, I had painted the chassis, the bodywork. You know, the bike was actually quite nice, and uh, I wish I still had that little bike now because I thought the design and, and the shapes of
3: of that era of Yamaha twins were just beautiful. My, I don't remember very much about mine. I just know it never ran right or didn't shift right, and I was didn't have the mechanical wherewithal to fix it, so it went. But one thing I do remember is the sound of the engine. I don't really, I couldn't even tell you what color it was. I mean, I vaguely, would, if I saw one, I'd say, okay, but I can just remember the sound that engine made. It was intoxicating when that thing revved up. It had a kind of an intake roar and a drone, and it just, I don't know, it just sounded feral to me. I just remember as a kid. Well, at
2: 16, I think it was Neil, I got my my very first uh, license. So I wonder if you can imagine the thrills that were had at that point in time, uh, building up motorcycles, progressing from home-built bicycles to moving to small displacement motorcycles and just the craziness of it all uh, during that summer. It it was just mad.
3: I I think one of the things that, you're living in America, obviously, having ridden all over this great country on motorcycles, it's very hard to impart to American listeners the thrill of a small motorcycle on English lanes when, you know, if you put your arms out full width, you literally could touch the trees with your fingertips on either side. And you only need to go 30 or 40 miles an hour down a road like that with the sides rushing by you for it to feel incredibly fast. I mean, we've all sat in an interstate on a modern superbike at a hundred miles an hour and realized, Oh shit, I'm going to get a ticket here. I better slow down. And not even known we were going a hundred miles an hour. But in those days, even a moped seemed fast in those roads. So, yeah, it was an exciting time, right? And who knew about tyre pressures, tyre technology, brakes? I mean, all we had to learn all that stuff, right?
2: Well, you know, those little bikes are probably only, I don't know, 220, 240 pounds weight or something. They didn't really need a whole lot of brakes, Neil. And on the roads that we were riding on, um, which were... Not too many of them were straight. It was all twists and turns, and you're on and off the throttle, up and down the gearbox a lot, and that really was um, an exercise in learning how to ride smooth. Which, of course, you bring forward with you in in life, and as you get bigger, more powerful bikes with better suspension, et cetera, et cetera, that really, you know, that really had a big influence and was a big learning curve for me. You started going to the races, you
3: said, on the CG, and that started prompting what where did you where did that take you
2: well in 1980 i think it was i got to go to my first race meeting which was the ulster grand prix and the ulster grand prix uh, and still is a huge event uh, an international event and um, myself and my brother david was on his triumph 500 daytona and there was a whole gang of us. Uh, we, we all rode up the, the motorway to Lisburn and then off to Dundrod to see the Ulster Grand Prix in 1980. And my bike was probably the smallest bike there. But anyhow, anyhow um, I remember at one point during the day, um, one of the top riders at the time was Sam McClemmons. And Sam had a Harris Suzuki GS1000. Oh, wow. He was one of the really fast guys at that point in time. And so was Ray McCulloch on his 350 Yamahas. And I remember getting into the pits at the Ulster Grand Prix, going looking for the Harris of Sam Mclemens to study it and, you know, compare all the chassis components to what was on new bikes at the time. And the Harris was just way ahead of it. Far better brakes, suspension, uh,
3: chassis was so much stronger, etc., etc. I was fascinated by all that stuff. That was the beginning of the journey for you then, seeing these modified British-built frames and upgraded parts. Yes,
2: because at the time, Neil, I was in the first year of my apprenticeship.
3: And um,
2: I didn't get into the toolmakers class in 1980, by the way. I was I was one number away from getting in. So I was bumped down to the machinist um, class, which is... Not quite a tool maker, but still quite, quite a good trade and a good skilled trade. And again, the reason why I chose that path was because I wanted to make motorcycle parts.
3: So you were pretty clear from the get-go then?
2: It was four years at that time. I had my first apprenticeship finished Neil when I was 21. And were you still on the CG at that point, or had you upgraded your bike? After the CG, I made a very big leap upwards, and I bought a Yamaha XJ650 Seeker which was quite a nice bike it was less than a year old when i got it i only had that bike for about two or three months neil and i fell victim to a drunk driver coming home from her son's wedding so uh i rode off the bike completely wrote it off rode off her car that i hit and almost wrote myself off too yeah um i got to meet god that night And I was sent back home because I was told I had things to do.
3: Did he send any messages? like,
2: Oh, well, I'm I'm not sure if I
3: should... Go build motorcycles, Paul Murphy.
2: No, you know, it's funny you should mention that, Neil, because I had this conversation only recently with my brother David. I remember that distinctly. uh, And I never shared that experience with anybody for probably 15 years. Because I, I... I'd never, I didn't know what it was. I was probably scared of it. Uh, I thought people would think I was crazy. But a, friend, a female friend of mine touched on it one time, and she spoke about what she called an out-of-body experience. And uh, as she explained what that was, I recalled and I thought to myself, that's exactly what I experienced. So to get back to the motorcycle accident, before we move forward, and now, um, I hit the, the car directly behind uh, the right-hand front wheel. Of course, the motorcycle and myself were were propelled up the road 40-something feet. And um, on the impact, the motorcycle bent the chassis in the car, and my left femur hit the, the pillar between the, the windshield and the front door of the car, and bent the windshield. Of course, my femur was broken in two places. And as I went up the road, I broke uh, my right collarbone, two wrists, my right arm, and my almost brand new Kenny Roberts replica AGV came off my head. So I've, uh, there's a, I think there's about a dozen stitches in my forehead. And then, uh, the usual lacerations, the fingers, hands, feet, all that stuff, you know. So anyhow, um, to get back about the impact immediately after the crash, um, I had had an experience where I was propelled going towards an extremely white, bright light at very, very fast speed. And in the distance, I could see this, character with a long beard and long hair in a white gown right down to his feet and my memory tells me that I was moving forward at incredible speed up towards this um, character and as I approached my speed slowed down very drastically and this person looked at me and said Paul you're not ready you have things to do go back Wow. And that was the end of it. Now, I will emphasise, Neil, it took 15 years. Uh, It took till 1987, sorry, 97, to share that story with anybody. Because I had no clue what it was. But when my female friend opened up that chapter one time, purely innocently, she had no clue that I had experienced this. And... I was prompted to think back to 1982, March 1982, when I had that accident, and uh, that was exactly what happened. So I didn't feel bad sharing it with anybody after that.
3: I I feel like I had a couple of similar similar experiences as the young mosaics, but they were usually caused by LSD or something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was never involved
2: in that kind of culture, Neil. So uh, whatever happened to me was certainly not synthetic.
3: It was right, real. Well, it wasn't it chemically was induced, induced, right? Yes. Yes. So how would the? I'm sure the parents were probably just horrified when they found you in hospital. Well, I can go one step further on that night, Neil. This was a March
2: 25th, 1982, I I was in the main Dublin-Belfast road. Um, I was actually going to pick up my girlfriend for a date. And the village that we lived in was Blackrock County Louth. And I was heading north on the Dublin-Belfast road. And there are three um, exits off the main road to go into Blackrock Village. And I'd had the crash on the most southerly exit of the three. My dad that night was coming home from uh, a funeral of a friend of his, daydreaming in the car. He was coming the opposite direction. He was daydreaming in the car. He missed his first exit to, to turn off the village. He missed the second one. And on his approach to the third one, an ambulance passed him going the opposite direction. And as he arrived up, he recognized the license plate of my motorcycle on its side smashed pieces on the road so he turned around and went straight to the hospital and um i think he must have perhaps he must have called home to get my mother or something because we didn't have cell phones or anything in those days and um yeah I was in a pretty bad way i was i was off work for quite some time um broken collarbone, broken femur in two places, two broken uh, wrists, a broken arm. It was kind of hard to make a cup of
3: tea. Were you itching to get back on a bike or did it take you a while to get back to motorcycling after that accident? I was absolutely itching to get back, Neil.
2: When I got out of hospital, um, I weighed 92 pounds and uh, I was very much skin and bone. I had long hair, that was certainly back in the day because none of that left. And I had a long beard. And my clothes were just hanging off me. But my brother brought me to the warehouse where, where the Yamaha was. And uh, so I could see it. And of course, my mind was working overtime. What do I need to fix it? So <laughs> uh, I had a mental image anyway. And I think it was either that evening or the following day. Um, I went and got motorcycle news to look up the adverts of the breakers to buy the parts I wanted to fi- needed to fix the bike which was a frame uh, forks, triple clamps, front wheel fender, fuel tank it needed everything I had to cut the frame in three places to get the engine out of the frame it was, it was that bad But you did put it back together? Yes I did uh, very successfully and um, I sold I sold the bike then and I was kind of out of bikes for probably close to a year and then I bought a Honda CB400F. Uh, a, a lovely example. Um it was 78 it was an F2 in yellow. And uh, that was a lovely bike. I had that bike for many many years.
3: Mm beautiful machine. Yeah,
2: yeah. My one had uh, Clubman bars on it, it had a full um, Bill Roberts fairing on it, which I painted to match the yellow of the, the Honda and I had the navy stripes on it. And the, the bike was gorgeous. I still have lots of photos of that bike. I got to do lots of rallies on that bike, uh, went to lots of race meetings, etc. cetera. Um, started to learn how to ride very smooth and be consistent and fast on that bike. And um, After about uh, three or four years I got um, I got a first generation GSXR 750 slab side that was six months old at the time and uh, it was the second GSXR to land in Ireland. Wow. That's a monster step up from a 404. Yes it was but at the time, Neil, um, I, I would still consider that at, the, at that time I was a smooth rider yeah. um, and a responsible rider. Um,
3: but the GSX-R was gorgeous. Uh, I wish I still had it, Neil. I mean, I remember walking into the Suzuki shop in Newton Abbot or actually riding my Laverda by then. It might have even been 85 when they first hit the showrooms and they were sold in 86 or the 86 models in the late 85. The chronology gets a bit blurred now, but, you know, I just remember looking at the GSX-R750 that you bought and the RGV5 from a Gamma. I was with a friend and we just thought this could, nothing could get better. This was just, oh, you know, like like this was a transcendence to my, because, you know, our bikes had tubular frames and they, you know, everybody had Brembo brakes on Ducati's and Laverda's and things. I mean, stuff was not that sophisticated when they came out. No, but it still was head and shoulders above of anything else at the time, Neil. Oh, head and shoulders,
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that engine was such a beautiful engine. It was 100 horsepower, 300 and something pounds weight. It was it was a race bike on the street. Absolutely it was. I remember at the time, Neil, in production racing at the Oster Grand Prix and uh, the Northwest 200 and the like, GSXRs were they were top of the class in, in production racing. The likes of Phil Mellor, uh, Road One, um Um Neil Robinson, the late Neil Robinson, uh, Smutty was his nickname. Um Joey O'Driscoll from Cork, he was quite successful on one. Uh, Joey's gone now too. Um yeah, that was the only thing to compare at the time, Neil, would have been the the Honda RCB 1000s of Roger Marshall and
3: Joey Dunlop. So did you ever get the bug to go racing yourself, or were you just more thinking about the fabrication part of it?
2: Well, in 87, Neil, uh, the economic climate in Ireland, and probably Britain as well, uh, the the, the economic climate was not good. No, no. At that stage, I had lost two jobs, and I was only... um, 22 or something, or 23 or something like that at the time. Uh, The company that I served my apprenticeship with, when I finished my apprenticeship, uh, I was rehired and stayed with them. And that company folded after many, many very successful years in business. And when I was 22, I moved to Shannon County Clare and I worked for a Canadian company actually in the industrial estate in, in Shannon. And, at that time I had the GSXR so I was with that company for I don't know maybe two years and again they folded and I was a bit pissed off at the time so I decided that I wanted to go to Australia and make some serious money so I applied to go to Australia I thought I'll apply to go to Canada also for a visa and lo and behold The Canadian visa came first and the rest is history. That's how I
3: ended up in Canada. What were you doing in motorcycling at that point? Had you bought a bike over here in Canada or were you staying away from that? I decided that I wanted to go back to
2: something a little bit more traditional and I still had my Honda 404 at that point. So I decided I was gonna buy or look for a nice Honda 750 and see if I can find something with the frame that handles. So I eventually came upon the Sealy Honda was advertised in Motorcycle News at uh, Mottingham Motorcycles. I think that that was in Kent. And um, I bought that bike sight unseen and I flew out a couple of days later, picked up the bike and rode it home. I was still living in Ireland at the time. That was in June 86. In May 87, I emigrated to Canada. In July 88, I went home to Ireland for a month's holidays and I brought the Sealy back with me to Canada. I rode the Sealy from uh, my home in Dundalk up to Dunleary in County Dublin. I took the ferry from Dunleary to Hollyhead, rode the bike from Hollyhead down to uh, Luton Airport and flew the bike out from Luton Airport to toronto the following day and when we arrived in toronto i literally got the bike unloaded off the plane and rode the bike from the airport to my home in burlington which is about 40 minutes away whatever happened to that ceiling it's right in front of me oh so you kept it i still have it yeah
3: oh there we go
2: yeah i've had that bike since 1986 so 36 years now or something
3: oh that's fantastic
2: it was a very interesting story with the sealy when i was coming bringing it bringing it to canada when i when i was on the boat at dunleary in county dublin getting ready to set sail for hollyhead i was up high in the boat and i was looking down at some of the vehicles getting loaded on and i saw a motorcycle that was painted in gray primer And I couldn't identify the bike because it was so far away so when the boat set sail I went through the lounge looking for somebody who might look like a motorcycle rider to meet the guy and see what this bike was so I did spot a guy the bike was a Ducati 900 SS and the owner was Gary Roberts who was the guitarist with the Boontown Rats (laughs) That's pretty wild. So myself and Gary, I didn't know who he was at the time. And we spent that whole trip on the boat in the lounge, drinking a couple of pints of Guinness and uh, chatting. And he said, he asked me, where was I going? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to Luton because I'm flying back to Canada with my bike where I live. And he said, oh, we'll be able to ride together. And I thought, terrific. So then he asked me what, who I was and I Introduced myself, and he said, uh, "I'm Gary." I says, "Oh, ho- how are you, Gary?" I hadn't a clue who this guy was. He was a kind of a Teddy boy with the the end the ankles of his jeans rolled up on Doc Martens and a bomber
3: jacket. But, but Geldof was the front man, so you didn't pay so much attention to the other guys, did you?
2: Well, yes and no, because one of the guys who was in who was in the band at the time, Pete Brickett. He called himself. He went to the same school as me in Dundalk, County Louth. Yeah. So anyhow, on the boat, Gary asked me what I worked at and what I did in Canada, et cetera, and why I went there. So I told him, and I said to him, what about you? Oh, he said, I'm a musician. Oh, I thought, oh, that's interesting because I have a big interest in music. I said, what instrument do you play? He said, I play a bit of guitar. I said, are you in any bands or anything? Oh, he said, I used to be in a band. I said, I'm not sure if you would know them. He said, "Uh, they're called the Boomtown Rats. And then the penny dropped. So we had the best of laughs. Right, right. Anyhow, we get to Hollyhead, uh, Neil, and that's where the fun really started. Gary was a good rider, and he was fast and he was smooth. And we came down the old a five down to Shrewsbury, and we were scorching it, absolutely scorching it. By the end of that ride, I had to call into the Frank Thomas factory in Britain to buy a new pair of boots, because I put a hole in the um, front right-hand corner of my right-hand boot. Dragging right the feet to the corners, huh? Yeah. It was a scorching ride. It It was one of those moments or rides in life, Neil, that I will bring to the grave with me. And I four, I four or five of those rides that I'll never forget. They were fabulous rides. That's one of them. And when we got to Shrewsbury, we stopped at a little roadside cafe, uh, which was basically a, a trailer, a truck and trailer. And we went in and got a toasty or something and a cup of tea, and we parted ways from there. But it, it was a great time.
3: Did you ever see him again afterwards?
2: No, I never did. Uh, that was in 1988. That was in August 88, Neil. Um, and only within the past year or two, Gary has passed away. Okay. Yeah. And uh, when the news broke that he passed away, it was on, on Facebook, I think. And um, I put up my condolences and a, a, a fairly brief story of the encounter I had with Gary and a couple of the photographs. And uh, it got a lot of attention. Yeah, but that was, that was just part of the history that just fell into my lap. And what's cool is you still
3: have the Sealy. So what took you back to Ireland in 98 then? And did you take the Sealy back with you or did you leave it in Canada?
2: Well, between 88 and 98, um, I had really took a great interest in making motorcycle parts. And I wanted to go to ride the bike, ride the Sealy uh, at Mossport International Raceway in Belleville, Ontario. Now Mossport is a beautiful racetrack. Meal. I'm not sure if we've ever been there. i've not? It's very, it's very much out in the country. Um, it's a beautiful track. There's camber change. There's elevation change. The back straight is about three quarters of a mile long. And it's just one of those tracks where, you you don't need too much brakes because it's such a fast flowing track. So I wanted to build the Sealy, and in that at the time, I had aspirations of making it go 150 miles an hour, which I still haven't achieved, how many years later. But I started to build the Sealy with some nice stuff, and I made my own uh, uh, cast iron brake rotors. My dad had bought me a set of uh, Lockheed brake calipers for it on a Lockheed master cylinder to give it some decent brakes. And, uh, I built up the engine. Um, uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was about 915 cc's and, uh, the bike was fast. It had a lot of torque. Was it, was it a single overhead cam 750? Yes. Single overhead cam. The bike was powerful and it was fast. It had oil leaks that I could never trace, or took me a long, long time to trace. And as it turned out, the oil leak was not from the engine, it was from the oil cooler at the front of the engine. And of course, all the oil that wept out of it came backwards onto the side panels, onto my knees, and stuff like that, you know. So it was a bit of a pain in the ass having that unreliable issue to the bike, but it was still a fun bike. And um, I did get to ride it that Sport many, many, many times. I've done hundreds of laps of Moseport, um and probably probably a couple of hundred laps of Sport on that actual bike. And um, I also rode it at Grattan uh, in Michigan. Um, I rode it at Mid-Ohio. At the time, Ducati 888s were pretty new and the 916 was pretty new. And I remember one year at Grattan, I'd say it was in about 95 or 96. Um, I trailed the bike down to Grattan on a friend's trailer. And I rode my uh, GPZ 1100 down there on the road. So I got to ride the Sealy at, at Grattan. And it was, it was hooliganism, Neil, because the bike was handling very, very well. And again, I still have, have some of the photos that people send me. The Sealy was, it was it was incredible in in the tight sections, because I was passing lots of people on much newer bikes, much better bikes, etc. etc. But of course, when you get onto the straight, the front straight at Grattan, which is fairly long, the same bikes would pass me at the same spot on the front straight because there's so much more power. And then at the end of the front straight, there's um, it's almost a hairpin. I would get on the inside of them and pass them on the brakes coming into the hairpin. and Yeah, lots of fun. Uh, and it's still a good handling bike. It's a, it's still a nice bike for what it is. Mm. You know, it's, I don't know. It's probably got 80, 85 horsepower or something. Um, but it's a good handling bike and it's smooth. What do you think it weighs? Oh, it's not a light bike, Neil.
3: Yeah, I'd say...
2: It's certainly more than 450 pounds. Okay, so it's not
3: stupid feather anything.
2: Oh, no, no. It has uh, Le- Leicester wheels on it, which are quite heavy. And uh, a Honda single cam motor is not a light motor. Yeah. Now, the, the chassis, the frame itself, the, the naked frame only weighs, I think it's 18 pounds. Um, the fuel tank on it is huge. It's a five and a half gallon fuel tank that's made from aluminum. And um, it's a cool bike, yeah. It's
3: a lovely piece of kit.
2: A lovely piece of kit, yeah. I've only ever seen uh, one other genuine Sealy in my whole life. Uh, now, I've seen quite a number of photographs of other bikes, but I've only ever laid eyes on one other.
3: So let's get. To, so what took you back to Ireland in 98?
2: In, seven, in 97, I think it was, I decided I was going to go to Ireland for a month. I shipped over my Suzuki GS750 to Ireland, and I spent 28 days in Ireland, cruising around Ireland, meeting people that I knew, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to try and get it either into my head: I want to go back to live in Ireland, or I don't want to go to live back and live in Ireland. So, I decided that I was going to go back to live in Ireland. Uh, the economy was good, um, you know. I had every chance of. Uh, been successful in getting a job or setting up a business or whatever so um, when I went back to Canada at the end of that holiday um, I decided I was going to back to live in Ireland and in February of the following year I put my home up for sale uh, sold it
3: I had a, a rental unit apartment that I sold so you were back in Ireland now for what about another decade before you came back to Canada uh, thirteen years, Neil. Thirteen yeah, Yeah. And what was the motorcycle scene through those thirteen years? Were you, you had your GS750, your Sealy, did you buy more? Or?
2: Well, I also had my first motor at that time, uh, a Bimota SB4S, which has a Suzuki GS 1150 motor in it.
3: So that's the big boy.
2: Yeah, that was um, that was a life-changing moment. Um, I bought that bike. Uh, I was living in Canada at the time. And in, I think I bought that bike in about 91. I went to, I I left Canada to go to Ireland for a month's holiday in June 91. And I bought that bike in England. And the reason I chose that model was because I'd had my GS750 for many years. I still have it, by the way. Um, And it was a full Yashmir Motor astro wheels calfab Olands—it all the right bits and it was a really fun bike mm. it's now got 110000 on on the clock
3: you still
2: have oh yeah i did a lot of miles on that bike and i i i, I think at that time neil i was a, a big suzuki fan so i decided i like a big a, an even bigger suzuki but i wanted one that I handled so i went looking at um magazines to to see frame kits etc cetera, etc cetera. So, to cut a long story short, I bought that bike in uh, uh, Bradford in the UK. And um, that was the finest motorcycle I'd ever ridden at the time. Uh, lovely motor, lots of torque, um, shed load of power everywhere, terrific handling, great suspension, terrific brakes. It was, um, that bike changed my life, Neil. And was the motor stock in that thing? Um, I think it was stock at the time, Neil. Yeah, it was rated, I think, at about 111 or maybe 117 horsepower. Hmm. But you lose a lot of weight in that motor. and yeah, but it, it was a, it was, it's a very, very fine handling bike. I got to race it, or sorry, to ride it at many, many track days over the years, and um,
3: again, a great motorcycle. I still have it. So when you so when you moved back to uh, Ireland in ninety eight for that thirteen year patch, you, did you take that back to Ireland with you? Yes, I did. I brought I brought uh,
2: the Sealy. I, at that time. I had the Sealy, uh, the GS seven fifty, the Mota SB two, the Mota SB 4s S, and the Kawasaki GPZ eleven hundred.
3: Okay, so you're
2: starting to get to be a bit of a collector here. You've got five bikes coming back with you. Well, the Suzuki GS750 and the GPZ1100, I'd hardly call them collector bikes, but I certainly had an interest in uh, aftermarket framed motorcycles. Mm-hmm. So what did, what did you do then for the next 13 years? i had gotten married at that point. And um, myself and my wife, Roisin, we had bought a, a nice house in the country that had quite a large garage in it, which I uh, renovated into a very high-end motorcycle workshop. And I was doing uh, race bike preparation and um, restoration work uh, as a business in, in, at my home. And again, that was, that was a real fun time. I also got to ride a lot myself I uh, Got to do lots of the rallies that year or those years, lots of the race meetings etc etc and i 'm sure as you 'll appreciate Neil uh, motorcycling in Ireland and England is very different than it is in North America in North America. I think motorcycles are it 's a hobby it 's a play thing where people buy beautiful motorcycles and you Know, go riding on highways and doing long trips, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because the country and the whole continent of North America is so huge. But in Ireland, it's a very, very different scene uh, because motorcycling in Ireland to a lot of people is daily transport. Um, the, the supporting um, uh, elements of motorcycling, like the racing, rallies, shows, etc., is so much bigger in the british isles than it is in north america and because of that uh, the whole motorcycle um, sport is so much more engaging in the british isles in my opinion than it is in north america but in north america uh, it certainly has some very very strong points we have the best of equipment you know the best riding gear um you know huge shows to go to see huge events like barber vintage fest etc cetera, etc cetera, which are absolutely world class events i'm lucky enough to have gone to i think two or three barber events
3: mm-hmm.
2: but uh the, the whole scene between the continent of north america versus the british isles is completely different completely different mm-hmm. So what made you want to come back to
3: Canada then
2: if... No, it was prompted to me, Neil. The print company that I'd left 13 years later, uh, the maintenance manager sent me an email and asked me if I was interested in coming back to Canada and work for them again. 13 days later, I was on the plane. Oh, wow. After 13 years? I still had my own dreams of what I wanted to do eventually, and uh, I wasn't giving up very easily. I wasn't giving up for anything, actually. Uh, I still had a lot of friends in the Toronto area. Um, some that were incredibly supportive that I, and that I'm extremely grateful to. Um, they know
3: who they are if they hear this podcast. So when did you um, graduate away from all, working for all these people and now start into what you're doing now with Meticulous restoration?
2: I have a nice three car uh, garage here at the house, which I spent a lot of time building and renovating that garage into a a very nice workshop. Um, I have all my tools and equipment there. It's all very well set up. My lathe is there, compressor, media blast cabinet, all the equipment is all there. And uh, it's clean, it's warm, it's well lit, you know, it's discreet. At that point in time, I'd own um, the number of bikes I owned myself was probably about two dozen or more. Um, a lot of them were project bikes that I wanted to build. And I spent a lot of time doing all that, building those bikes. Now, if we can rewind it just a little bit, Neil, when our container arrived in Alberta from Ireland with all the bikes in it, all our workshop equipment, our furniture, everything that we owned. Um, I I had 12 bikes in that container. Every one of them was created in a proper motorcycle crate. They were all Yamaha motorcycle crates that I'd got from uh, the Irish Yamaha distributors in Dublin. These crates were all brand new. They'd arrived at Yamaha, they took the bikes out, and I called the guys that I knew there quite well. I said, I need a dozen. Sure, no problem, we have, we'll have them next week. So I created up all my bikes, put them into the container, Neil. All the workshop equipment, the furniture, everything we owned. And unknown to us, when that container arrived in Montreal, it was seized by customs, stripped out and searched. And everything was thrown back into that container like it was garbage. The the estimate for the damage on the motorcycles alone was $55,000. My Bimota SB2, which is probably the most valuable motorcycle I have, it's probably a $55,000 US dollar bike. That bike was in a a proper motorcycle crate. Whoever loaded up the container put a four-cylinder Suzuki GS1000 engine sitting on the, uh, the seat fairing behind the rider and stuff thrown onto the bikes like it was just garbage or furniture. Most of the furniture when we got it out of the container didn't even make it into the house. It was
3: that badly damaged. It all went to the dump. Wow. They just wrecked. Was there any recompense for you for the damage? We
2: were recommended to go to a particular law firm here in uh, Alberta. And I really don't want to talk about that, Neil, because that was just another nightmare.
3: Mm.
2: We, we got absolutely ripped off by a, a law firm. We spent $14,000 on a lawsuit and they turned around on about the 21st of December of that year and said, you don't have a leg to stand on because maritime law and the law of the land are two very, very, very different animals.
3: So they were just able to just destroy your stuff, throw it back in and say, have a nice day. Yeah. So that was a CBSA
2: uh, Canada Border Services Agency, basically Canada Customs, Happy uh, Lloyd. Um, oh, there was a number of people involved. We got not one penny out of that, Neil, not one penny.
3: So you had to set about fixing all of your stuff initially?
2: Yep. Now, Every cloud is a silver lining, needle, and we have to think positive and remember that. I had a dozen bikes, all of which were, every one of them was damaged, some more so than others. Oh. Um, I spent three and a half thousand dollars to fix the bodywork on the Bimota SB2. Mm. Uh, and the reason for that was I had gotten a phone call from a gentleman I'd never even heard of before called paul d'orleans whom you may know of paul is the uh, stalwart behind the uh, vintage website and paul is the curator of the uh, motorcycle end of things at the peterson museum in los angeles and paul had called me it was in around this time of, of year it was in december I was up on site in uh, Fort McMurray at the time, and he said that he was putting on um, uh, a show in the Peterson Museum, Los Angeles, called Silver Shotgun. And it was a celebration of Italian design and style in the 1970s. And he was looking for a Bimota SB2 for that show, for that display. And that was in December of uh, can't remember, I think it was 2019 perhaps. So I had to do a big rush on getting the SB2 restored because the that was December 2016 and the show was opening night was on I think it was January 16th of 2020. So I had about two weeks to get the sb2 restored and get it down there so i did that other than the bodywork i had the whole bike restored um, nut and bolt restoration engine rebuilt, uh, all engine cases refinished frame wheels one week frame wheels everything uh, repowder coated all the anodizing we done, brakes rebuilt, everything, new tires, new chain, all the the bits. And I left, uh, I got the bodywork back. It was absolutely beautiful. It was stunning. And during that time, there was the issue of how was the bike going to get delivered down there on time. To cut a long story short, the only option was because we were out of time, was for me to drive the van, drive the van down to Los Angeles with the SB2 in the back. So I put the SB2 into the van. Um, I have a, I have my van very nicely set up. It's got a, it's got a bed in it. It's got a toilet. It's got all the facilities for my clothes, my food, etc. So it took me four days in extreme snow weather in January 2020 to get down to Los Angeles with the SB2. So I got it down there um, and I went into the museum and I got there, I think, on maybe the 14th of January or maybe the 15th. Uh, Roshan and Ryan flew in to Los Angeles on the 15th and on the 16th was opening night in the Peterson for the Silver Shotgun Museum. Uh, Silver Shotgun display, I should say. And when I dropped the bike off, and the bike was set up, or I was told where the bike was going to be set up in the display. I was fine with that. The curators told me what was gonna happen. Uh the following evening on opening opening night, myself and Roshan and Ryan arrive in, and there was the SB2 uh center stage at the premium uh position in the whole display. Wow. Uh to my dis- to my surprise. And the bike won uh people's choice and best of show on that evening and it was in that display for that display around for it was supposed to be 12 months but at that time covid had hit neil and the museum i think had closed down for a while so i think the display might have been for maybe 18 months in total um and then the bike was downstairs in the peterson until about April or May of last year yeah so last year uh, being 2022 um, I got an invite to go to display at the the quail motorcycle gathering in Carmel California so I took up that um, opportunity and I brought down my Bimota SB3, which has a Suzuki GS1000 engine. I brought the SB4S, which has the Suzuki GS1150 engine. And I got my good friend, Carrie Andrew from Hypercycle in Van Nuys, uh, Los Angeles, to pick up the SB2 from the Peterson Museum in advance of me getting down to California. So Carrie picked up the bike, brought it back to his shop, I arrived down in the van with the other two remoters in the back of the van. And I spent a couple of days working on the SB2 at Carrie's shop, getting it recommissioned. I had to rebuild the carbs and get a battery and you know general stuff after the bike had sat for so long. And I loaded that third bike, the SB2, into the van, went north up to Monterey, um, to the Quail, had the three consecutive B-Motors there on display, and the SB2 won Best Italian Motorcycle at the Quail in 2022. So I was absolutely delighted with that. And of course, the great thing about shows, and the, the main reason why I've gone to shows over the years, is because do being involved in what I do, building motorcycles and creating special parts and all that i wanted to meet other people who are doing the same kind of stuff and you know build up a network and uh, see what other people are doing and try and try and get some inspiration from what other people are doing or what's going on in the marketplace etc in an effort hopefully to try and get on top of my game and if i can get there try and stay there so that's the main reason why i've always gone to shows and of course you get to meet great people along the way, yourself included. And um, you know, I've met so many
3: terrific people over the years, it's just been fantastic. I'm a very lucky guy. So if we went into your workshop today, I know you just finished a big restoration, the Piper. Um, where is that bike now? The Piper's not quite finished yet, Neil. I mean that's, that's been that's been a really fascinating like, you know, for people who can follow you on Facebook. Meticulous is an absolute word, but it's really interesting because the piper is very rare, and there was a lot of challenges in that that you've been sharing, you know, through social media, which is great for us.
2: The piper is—it's quite a fascinating story, Neil, um, and I—I I hope I don't sound selfish when I say it's fascinating to me. Uh, whether it is to other people or not is out of my control. I, but I hope it is. The Piper is definitely one of those bikes, Neil, that found me. And the reason I say that is um, a gentleman from uh, Chicago area called me a couple of years ago. I guess he had seen my postings on Facebook and the type of bikes I work on on, and what I do. And I got this phone call. Uh, This gentleman, I think, is a politician in um, Chicago area. And he said to me that he had this Piper motorcycle for 25 years. It had a single cam Honda 750 motor in it. And the bike is essentially brand new, has never been finished, has never been run, and is somewhat incomplete because it, it did not have the the big uh, fairing on the bike. I'd never heard of a Honda Piper before that, and I said to him that I would research this and see what could I find for him. He would only explain to me that with the chassis, which is very nice, Piper built chassis, that he had a, an incomplete Piper twin cam four valve head, which was a, an aftermarket conversion offered by Piper for the single cam Honda engine to make it into uh, a 1000cc twin cam four valve, which would probably produce 30, to 35 horsepower above um, a stock Honda CB750. So anyhow, the next part of that equation was that I had to do an awful lot of research and I spent about four days researching Piper and specifically Piper Honda and Piper Kawasaki, et cetera, et cetera. And I discovered that the Piper Honda, uh, being a full Piper Honda, frame included, not just the engine, that this bike was one of four chassis built in around 1972 to contest the British Endurance Racing Championship. And the rider they had uh, commissioned at the time was none other than Paul Smart, as in Paul Smart Ducati, uh, brother-in-law of the late, great Barry Sheen. So there was a bit of provenance there. And along the way in my um, uh, research about Piper, I got to speak with um, uh, the gentleman who owns Piper in the UK. The company is still running. They're called Piper Cams now and they concentrate on the automotive end of the business. They build, they build and designed camshafts and exhaust systems, etc.,
3: for performance cars. But they only made stuff for Kawasaki and Honda in the day? Back in the day, yes. This is
2: early 70s. They still do camshafts, I think, for motorcycles, but that's, I don't think they do anything further. But of course, they're only working on current and new model motorcycles no old stuff like what i have so anyhow uh, i also got to speak with a number of former employees from piper who worked there in the 70s when the motorcycles were being built and i got a huge amount of information gathered up along the way so in terms of looking for a fairing for the piper for the gentleman in chicago absolutely non-existent because I discovered uh, that all the moulds, all the casting moulds, bodywork moulds and everything were thrown out years ago, like probably late 70s, early 80s. And that stuff was absolutely unobtainium. So after about two weeks, I phoned this gentleman back in Chicago and I said to him, I told him all of what I had done and what I had found out. And I said, your chances of getting a fairing are slim to none i I guess that kind of took the wind out of his sails and he said well if that's the case he said i don't want it i said okay no harm done i thanked him for his inquiry and as i'm about to hang up the phone he said well look at do you want it and i said not really i said i haven't given it any thought i said but maybe if you leave it with me and let me think it over and I can get back to you. So I called him back a couple of weeks later and um, I said that I would be interested in the frame because I felt I could build a nice uh, single cam powered Piper. And I asked him what he wanted for it. Um, it was more than I wanted to pay because I felt the Piper was such an unknown quantity uh, with very little information available parts etc were almost non-existent so i made him an offer anyway and he accepted it Uh, that was february of 21 i think so in may of 21 uh, i picked up the bike in chicago on my way back from a track day meeting in ontario uh, with my buell so i picked up the piper anyway and um I started doing some real digging after that and I had kind of consigned the, the very special four valve twin cam head. I would kind of consigned that to uh, something that was only ever going to be a conversation piece because I felt it would be impossible to either find or make the parts to make that a complete cylinder head because when I got the head, all that was on it was the cam cover, valves and springs in one cylinder. That was it, there was nothing beyond that. The head also had um, a Piper built mechanical fuel injection, which again was incomplete. So I had started to put a, um, a plan together and taking down, uh, building a file of notes of what I felt this motorcycle should be. And at some point I was looking at the Piper head, and thinking, good Lord, I have to challenge this one. I just, I just have to do it. There, there is no information, or if any, extremely small amounts of information about Piper on the planet. I just felt, I, I don't know if you can understand it, Neil, but when you have a, something like that, that is so rare, uh, so undeveloped, so unfinished, so incomplete, Sometimes you just have you just have to pick up the baton mm. and run with it
3: and that's where you're at with the project now, so you're almost finished well,
2: no, that's not where I'm at Neil I'm way beyond that point because at this point, what I've done is i've sourced and found a set of new of used cams which are not in perfect condition I got. Uh, valves made, custom made in the UK by the leading UK valve manufacturer, GNS Valves. I got valve springs made to spec, custom made here in Edmonton. Remember, Edmonton is an oil city. We have all kinds of specialized industries here in Edmonton. So I valve springs, I got uh, valve seats and valve caps made uh valve cutters valve followers all custom made another set of brand new camshafts i had to make cylinder studs uh make all the uh cam caps there's 12 caps in total six caps holding each cam i got donated um the idler gear that comes up through the center of the um uh, between cylinders two and three. Uh, your cam chain is fixed onto a stock on the cam sprocket. That cam sprocket is bolted onto a flange. On the other side of the flange, there is a gear. So now the whole thing is a, a turning assembly. And the camshafts are also gear driven. But because the, the crankshaft is rotating in the, in the clockwise direction, the cams are rotating anti-clockwise. Okay. So then I, I also got cam gears um, and I had to make everything else. I had to make the oiling system for the top. I had to finish machining the, um, the cam cover because it didn't have the, the semicircles at the end of each uh, cam. Um, then I had to make exhaust spigots to attach on a custom-made exhaust system. Uh, aluminum intake ports to bolt onto the, uh, the intake side of the head, and then in turn had to source, uh, find uh, rubber intake boots that would have the correct angle on them to get the carbs on. Then the carbs that I chose for, for that project are Caheen uh, CR33 specials. Initially I thought I would use VM29 smooth bores. But of course, then the first problem is that the piper head spacings between intake one and two, then two and three, and three and four, they're not the same pitch as a stock Honda head. So the smooth boards would not work. So then chose CR33 specials because they are mounted on uh, aluminum angular rails, which is easy to remanufacture. So to get the carbs to work, I had to make mounting rails, um, a shaft for the uh, to, to lift the throttle slides. I had to make all new fuel rails to space the carbs. Um, yada, yada 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 yada. It goes on and on. Um, I had to make the uh, cylinder studs, um, and because the cylinder the piper head is so compact. It can't accept uh, flanged M8 nuts. I had to source and buy ARP 12-point nuts to fit down into the counterboard recess in the head where the cylinder studs come through. Um, Another thing about the piper head, it only uses uh, 12-cylinder studs, whereas a stock Honda CB750 has 16-cylinder studs. So between cylinders one and two and three and four, there are eight cylinder studs in total, four on each side. I had to remove those from the crankcase mouth and then set up and machine and drill and tap an M10 thread to replace those studs and replace those four studs on each side with a single m10 stud to replace each pair of oem studs now that's a lot of machining neil because you have to machine the crankcase mouth uh, to accept an m10 stud and where the two m8 studs were i plugged those holes with rub screws to try and maintain some strength in the crankcase mouth opening then the cylinder block had to be drilled and that's a simple term, it had to be machined to let the cylinder block sit down over the four new studs along with the eight other OEM studs. Yada 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 Then all the sealing system had to be done. A custom made base gasket had to be, had to be made and head gasket for the same reason, because the stud pattern is now different on the piper head. So it's a very complicated issue to just take a piper head and put it onto a single cam Honda motor. Now, in building the bottom end of the motor, I chose to use um, a Russ Collins Engineering stroked crankshaft. And along with that crankshaft, I had a set of uh, Russ Collins Engineering uh, billet aluminum connecting rods, known as uh, golden rods. And they're very big rods, Neil. They're, they're physically they're quite big but they're only about 65% weight of a stock Honda rod. So they're a lot lighter. So with using the stroked crank and those big rods, there was a lot of cleanup work had to be done on the crankcases to allow the, the crankshaft assembly rotate without touching the inside of the, of the crank cases. Then also, because the, uh, the Piper is a four valve head, I had to do a lot of digging to find pistons that would give me close to a thousand ccs displacement that had four valve cutouts in the crown of, the, of each piston, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. That also meant boring out a, a cylinder block uh, to accept bigger cylinder sleeves. Again, a big machining job: bore out the remove the original sleeves, bore out the block. Uh, insert the new LA sleeve company sleeves. bore out the new sleeves to fit the pistons. Uh, machine um, a taper at the bottom of this of the cylinder spigots to allow the rings get in, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And another thing was that because of the size of the of the con rods, the skirts of the pistons had to be machined because the the rods were touching the skirts the bottom of the skirts of the Pistons while trying to rotate a full 360 degrees. Wow, so you had to say the bottom of the piston just to accommodate, huh? Yeah, I think there, were, I think there was about, uh, I think it was hundred and ninety towel was removed from the bottom of each skirt. Now, bear in mind, Neil, that Pistons are not parallel. The widest part of the Piston is the very bo- bottom of the Piston of the skirt. So the cylinder block had to be bored according, accordingly after the pistons were machined. How long? How long did in time frame? I'm afraid to tell you how much, how many hours
3: I have in that Piper project as a whole. But this is just the engine. This has nothing to do with the rolling chassis, the brakes, the suspension, electrics. I mean, this is just the engine. Yeah. In that whole project, I have just over six hundred hours. Wow. And do you have any prediction when that will be a completely finished and running motorcycle? I mean, a day, a week, a month, a year, or or is it just impossible? That time is approaching, Neil, fairly fast.
2: Um, the chassis is pretty much complete. There there might be there might be two days work left in finishing small bits and pieces in the chassis. All the paintwork is done. Everything is the whole chassis is ready. If the engine was done, I would put it in, and the bike would be finished. The engine is currently built up to the um, uh, head gasket. Currently, the cylinder head is at the machine shop to get the um, the semicircles machined at each end of the cam cover in line with the with the cylinder head, and there was a couple of other small things had to be adjusted in the cylinder head. I made um, a top-end oiling system to feed oil directly up to the uh, camshafts as well, Neil, and also to the bearings in the idler, uh, in the center of the cylinder head to get oil up there immediately upon fire up. And if, if you look at some of my Facebook postings in the piper over the past while, you, you'll see all those all that work and a pretty good explanation in my text of each posting. And in the postings that I make, Neil, I, I, I try to explain what I've done in ordinary layman's terms, if if, I'm even, if it's even within my capabilities. I don't know if it is or not. But I do try and explain things uh, simply, how it was done, but more so why I've, do, why I've taken that path to do what I've done. And hopefully that people will understand why I do the, the the work that I do, and why it has to be done. And to try and get a full understanding of what's happening in in this case, uh, in a uh, in a custom built motor, which basically is what that Piper engine is. Um. The guys at Piper Camshafts in England have very little. Um, in their resources or their archives on that project from the early 70s so this literally is the only one left or do you know any others this is the only complete piper engine and
3: frame uh, left on the planet and what um when you when you're fully done with it are you going to take it to, to a show are you gonna um, is it gonna to go to the quail is it gonna to go to barbara is it going in magazines what i did have the bike uh, albeit
2: incomplete at uh, the quail uh, this past year Neil May 23. yeah and how what was the reception at that point it was incredible oh I'm sure such was the interest on um, on a very big scale and let's just use uh, the Facebook community as an example there was such interest in the piper that the ceo of piper cams um, and a former employee uh, the former employee being pierce cooper and john crab is the ceo of piper they flew in to join me at the quail this year to support their bike oh that is beautiful that that to me speaks volumes and i was incredibly humbled uh, by that gesture and, and by that support and John and Piers are gentlemen to the last degree, extremely helpful, um, just all around great human beings. Um, and they have been so much helped me. Uh, it's, it's just incredible. At one point in time, um, Neil, uh, Piers Cooper drove from his home in Kent up to Liverpool to see a piper head that a gentleman in Liverpool had in an attempt to buy that head off him so they could replicate some of the parts. He did that on my behalf and wouldn't expect any remuneration whatsoever. Mm. Uh, John Crabb has been incredibly supportive and helpful. John arrived at the Quail in May and give me a brand new set of camshafts that he was after making for my cylinder head. John also supplied the cam followers, the idler gear assembly to attach onto the cam chain, uh, gears for the camshafts. This just goes on and on. The help I've got from those two gentlemen and other people in our Facebook family, Neil, has just been incredible. I would like to take it to the quail uh, next year, 2024, um, which is just around the corner,
3: really. Well, Paul, I'm going to uh, wrap things up at the pipe because I know we could sit here and dig into the other projects that you ha- have worked on and work I mean, There's so much in this life of yours in motorcycling. It's been lovely um, catching up, Paul, finding out what a great and interesting history from bombing around to... Race strikes in Ireland on a CG 125 to restoring some of the world's most rare and collectible motorcycles. And we didn't even really touch into the stuff that you do with your promoters and Bob Steinbugler. So maybe we'll have to come back and do a revisit and just do one uh, specific podcast and everything you're working on in the moment, because we could probably fill a couple of hours just just with that. So thanks very much for coming on, Paul. Well, the, the pleasure's mine, Neil. So, if someone wants to follow you, meticulous restorations on Facebook, uh,
2: meticulous motor restorations by Paul Murphy, uh, or just my own page, simply Paul Murphy. I typically post on both pages to try and hit the biggest audience I can.
3: Yeah, and and they're, and they're fantastic posts to follow if people if people are into restoration and mm. like to see the process. I mean, you're very excuse the pun, meticulous about your photography and posting and and coming along on the journey. So, Paul, you have a great day out there. Thank you very much. And uh, we will talk soon. Thank you so much, Neil. The pleasure was mine.